thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we're going to look at the book of Ezekiel. Um, it is again one of those very important sources for understanding the book of Revelation. It is a uh, book that um, is in many ways difficult to understand, yet uh, foundational for the kinds of imagery and symbolism we're going to encounter in the book of Revelation. Comparison between some of the images you will find in Ezekiel and some of the images you'll find in Revelation. Uh, there is one actually that is missing and that is the, uh, the fact that God asked Ezekiel to eat a scroll and he will also ask St. John to eat a scroll as well. So that's yet another piece we find in both books. Both of them are commanded to eat a scroll. Let's put it in context. The year is 597-598 BC. The first military action of the Babylonians with Nebuchadnezzar up in Judea resulted in a number of Judeans being taken captive into exile. And they live in a little town called Tel Abib by the river Shebar. Among them is a priest, and his name is Ezekiel. These Judean exiles have pinned their hopes on the idea that since God is with us, Jerusalem and the temple cannot fall. Their hopes are based on the fact that the first military intervention of the book of the Nusser into Judea did not destroy the temple. Instead, the book of the Nusser had elevated a, a, a prince, made him a king, made him swear an oath, and they're still, they're still reigning down there. So their hopes is that Judah will be freed and we are going to be able to go back to Judea very quickly. The reason why I'm doing Ezekiel after Daniel, even though in a sense we should have done Ezekiel before Daniel, is to give you perspective. With Daniel we've seen a much deeper perspective. We've seen that Daniel understood Jeremiah and others mean that the exile will last 70 years. 
And here we are at the beginning of that exile for Judea, and they're already thinking of being able to go back to Jerusalem. Therefore, there is a, clearly in the minds of the Judean, there is ignorance as to what Scripture says, and there is um, a sense that simply because Jerusalem is with us, we should be able to, to uh, hold on. It's, it's a sort of a common notion where religion delves into superstition. And Catholics aren't immune to that either. You can encounter that in one of two ways. The one way is the notion that I'm a Catholic, I go to church, I do the stuff that the church asks me to do, and so I should, be, I should go to heaven. Right? So that's on one extreme. On the other extreme, um, you have people who will put, who will say, well, you know, I, I, I wear this scapular, therefore I'm going to be saved. There's this form where, we, where religion can very easily dip into superstition because, because we want assurance. All of us want assurance, wants to be assured of something. And when our faith is weak, when the faculty of faith, remember fa faith is a supernatural faculty, just like seeing is a faculty, and tasting is a faculty, and hearing is a faculty, Faith is a supernatural faculty. It's the ability of the human being to believe, to put his trust in God. That's how our relationship to God is structured. That's the primary means by which we tell God that he's important to us. But when we do not want to grow in faith, we're going to rely on things we can touch, we can see, we can smell, we can manipulate. And that's a universal tendency. It's absolutely universal. That's why, in fact, um, folks who are non-religious tend to be very superstitious. Because there's this void in the soul of man, and it has to be filled by something. The only real defense against superstition is actually true religion. So here they are on that, on, on that river, and they're really hoping that it's going to happen. Additionally, they have a bunch of prophets and prophetess, prophetesses, the feminine, anyhow, who are telling them that everything is cool. God will protect Jerusalem. Ezekiel shows up and says, Baloney, that's not going to happen. In fact, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And God will prophesy through Jerusalem for about ten years. For 10 years, this man is repeating the same message. Until in 586, 587, Jerusalem indeed is destroyed. That's one part of the book of Ezekiel. The second part is a series of seven prophecies, seven woes against nations who have attacked Israel. And again, seven here is important owing to the covenant. It's a covenantal lawsuit against all the Gentile nation, Gentiles nations. In fact, a covenantal lawsuit against any nation that rises against the people of God, including Israel during the time of Christ. Right? And then the third part of the book is this vision of the New Jerusalem. The vision of the New Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, 
when the book of uh, of Ezekiel was penned down, rabbis down the road hesitated to consider it canonical. And after they decided to include it in the canon of scripture, the Jewish canon of scripture, they decided that no man under 30 should read this book. Owing to two principal facts. Number one, the first, even the opening chapter is extremely harsh, extremely hard. The language you will see again is very strict, very hard, unforgiving, unremitting, without pity. And secondarily, the vision of the temple contradicted, contradicted laws established under Moses. For instance, the Holy of Holies is not separated. There's no veil. How could the temple be rebuilt and yet violate the Holy of the, 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 the rules that God gave Moses? And you can see, therefore, that that vision makes no sense without the New Covenant. So that when Christ on the cross died, and Matthew specifically says, the veil was rent from top to bottom, he had this in mind. He had that new vision. The new Jerusalem. Which is going to be seen again in St. John. Right? Going to be seen again in St. John. That's in a nutshell, the structure of the book. A series of woes against those who are... A series of woes against Israel, essentially, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem. A series of woes against countries who were set against Jerusalem. And then, the vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. We should also note some parts which are very specific, which you may know about one of which is the vision of the dead bones. How many of you are familiar with this? When Isaiah finds it, Ezekiel finds himself in this valley of the dead and all around him are bones. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones. What shall I prophesy? Prophesy to them. And as I spoke, sinews were put on the bones and flesh was added to them and muscles and then skin and then breath was breathed into them and they stood up. People tend to take the literal meaning to be the resurrection of the dead. But it is hardly so. This is not a prophecy that is primarily considered concerned with the resurrection of the dead. Because after all, for the resurrection of the dead, God need not prophesy to old bones since everything will be new creation in God. This is a prophecy about the restoration of Israel. Israel is the dead bones. Right? So for instance today, in a very practical sense, you can look at the state of Israel and you could see that from a perspective of faith, it is essentially dead bones. But it is there. Bones have now been put back together. Now God is going to have to bring up put back sinews on them and muscles and flesh and breathe into them for their conversion. Because St. Paul is emphatic, one of the signs of the end times, of the end of the world, is the conversion of the Jews. And this process may take three years or 10,000 years. We don't know. Why is this book important? Precisely because of that sheet of paper I just passed on to you. You can see the 
parallelism between the two. First, uh, Ezekiel has a vision of a fiery cloud and John has a vision of heaven. Um, in Ezekiel, there is a parable where Ezekiel is required to take hair from his head, shave his hair, and in, break it into three parts. And sprinkle one part here, and one part there, and one part here. And the same thing, although it's fire, happens in, in, uh, in the Apocalypse of St. John. One third, one third, one third. In Ezekiel, the, a man in linen, at one point we will see that there are six men, actually they're angels, coming from the north, and in the midst of them is a man dressed in linen. And that man dressed in linen is commanded by God to walk in the city of Jerusalem and seal the foreheads of those who are just. And once the seal has been put on their forehead, then the six men who come from the north, and the reason that it is from the north is because of the Babylonian invasion, will come from the north, are to walk through the city and slay everyone who does not have that sign on his forehead. And that meant everyone. Children, grown-ups, didn't matter. Prefiguring the destruction that Nebuchadnezzar will bring, but also indicating that it is that, that the invader, the Babylonian invader, is really the instrument in God's hands. Ezekiel has a vision of the throne of God. John has a vision of the throne. In John we have the number 666. In Ezekiel it is prefigured because it is on the sixth year, the sixth month, the fifth day. That the prophecy of destruction is coming, indicating that it is going to reach its fulfillment very soon. The man in Ezekiel, the man dressed in linen, gets between the four wheels of the vision and takes coal from the, within the wheels and he throws the coal in Jerusalem to set it in fire and then in John there is an angel who goes to the altar of the Lord, takes the censer, fills it with coal and throws the censer on the land and sets it in fire. In Ezekiel we have a prophecy in Jerusalem. In John we have a clear indication that the nations will trample the holy city. In Ezekiel, the Lord assures them that there should be no more delay. In John, a mighty angel comes down from heaven, has one foot on the land and one foot in the sea, raises both hands and says, and swears by him who lives forever and ever that there will be no more delay. The same exact wording is used in both books. In Ezekiel, there is a long section that, has, that deals with Jerusalem where God says essentially that Jerusalem trusts in her beauty but that at the end of the day she played the harlot. No other city in the Old Testament is called a harlot at Jerusalem. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. The only city that is consistently called a harlot is Jerusalem. Why? Is it because it's the city that had committed the worst sins? No. Which city was espoused to the Lord? Which city was considered to be the bride of the Lord? Jerusalem. So the only city that could really play the harlot as far as God was concerned was his bride. You understand? And so in John, we will encounter the vision of the harlot. The reason why this is important is because most commentary, you pick 9 out of 10 commentaries today on the book of Revelation, and 9 out of 10 will tell you that that city, the harlot, is Rome. 
And that is based on a Jewish apocalyptic, because the Jews at the time of Jesus wanted Rome destroyed. And most folks follow that approach. But it's not consonant with scripture. Jerusalem is the city that was called Harlot par excellence, because it is really the city that had, coven that had entered the covenant with God, no other city did. And that's going to be very important when we hit the book of Revelation for our understanding who that harlot is. In Ezekiel, there is a parable where we, where, where we hear two eagles. The e one eagle is representing Babylon, and the other one, um, Egypt. And the first eagle, the great eagle, will destroy the second one. Basically what happens is that the king in Jerusalem, who was making by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, decided to rebel against him and allied himself with Egypt. And that provoked the second uh, Babylonian invasion. In, in the book of Revelation, we have a great eagle that comes by and says, Woe, woe, woe. Three times woe. Remember the meaning of three. Right? It's an absolute woe. And by the way, during Christ's time, which army had an eagle as its symbol? Roman army. Alright? In Ezekiel, a sword has been sharpened and drawn against Jerusalem. This is what Ezekiel must prophesy, the sword has been burnished. In Revelation, when, when John sees Jesus for the first time, what is coming out of his mouth? A double-edged sword. Okay. In Ezekiel, there is a prophecy against Gog, the king of Magog. Have you heard of Gog and Magog? It's the great... You know, it's, it's the second battle in the book of uh, Revelation. It's actually the biggest of the battles. Most people know of the first battle. It's the most famous one. Armageddon. Right? The battle of Armageddon. But really, Gog and Magog is the big battle. And again, it appears in both books. And finally, in Ezekiel, you have the vision of the new temple which closes the book, and in John you have the vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, which closes the book. Right? So you can see how many elements which are, which are seen by Ezekiel are present again in the book of Revelation, with some, fun, with some important differences. For instance, in the case of Ezekiel, the new temple has uh, a holy of holies. In the case of John, the New Jerusalem has no Holy of Holies. Okay, because the Lord is in their midst. And we'll see some of the other differences as we go through the book. So that's, what, that's, that's why this book is important for us. And what we're going to do is, again, try to skim through and capture some of the most important elements of the book um, so that we can be at least familiar with its makeup, its structure, and a little bit of its content. And keep that in our, in our back pocket when we reach the book of Revelation. So why don't you turn to the book of Ezekiel, which is, if you're looking for it, it'll be right after Baruch, which is after Jeremiah. I mean, Lamentations and in Jeremiah. So, next time, I'll bring with me a chronology of events the most important events that are in the book of Revelation, starting with the first uh, vision, which is about 598, as I said, B.C., and going through.
um, so that you can also keep that, uh, keep that uh, in mind. In the first chapter, uh, Ezekiel has the first vision. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness round about it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming bronze. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the form of men, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Uh, these same four creatures we will find again in the vision of John around the throne of God. The four creatures with the four heads and the six wings, etc. Although in the, in the case of John it is simplified. Each one of them has only one face. In this case they have four faces. And again the four faces, four, is, is your, 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 um, um, is the, is the key, because four is what? It's the nations, it's universality, right? So these four creatures cover the earth, right? Continuously cover the earth. Uh, who are they? Um, we don't really know. Uh, one explanation, they're thrones that belong to the, to the, to the choir of thrones. Um, they're kind of angels, right? Remember, angels don't have bodies, right? So they can take any shape. They, they can rep manifest themselves with whichever shape they see fit. Uh, the Father certainly saw in them the four evangelists, right? And uh, that is certainly a secondary meaning, but not a primary meaning. Their wings touched one another. They went every one straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, uh, the four had the face of a lion on the right, the, the four had the face of an ox on the left, and the four had the face of an eagle on the back. So these four faces represent um, some of their characteristics and their qualities. The face of a man means that they're rational. Those are creatures who are rational, whatever they are, so they're not just beastly. And the ox and the and the lion and the eagle are some of their characteristics. Speed, strength, power come with them. So, and, and the wings again is speed, right? So all these combine to lead, lead us to think that if they are indeed angelic, they are high angels, they are at the service of God, and they are also concerned by the, by the, by the affairs of the world. So that's why we can exclude the seraphim because typically seraphims are all about, they're called the flame of love because they surround God and they adore God and they're mostly focused on God and cherubims are known for music and then thrones, very little known about them other than they're called thrones. Why are they called thrones? I don't know. But there you go. Uh, we have to be careful with the images. We need to understand them for what they are. Those are symbols trying to convey certain qualities about someone, right? So if you say about somebody that he's, uh, you know, as, you know, I saw this man walking down the street and he walked like a rock, right? If you were to use such an image, everybody will understand he did not, he was not a rock, he wasn't a piece of rock walking. You're just trying to convey how hard or how strong or how resilient he was. Or you say of someone um, strong as, 
as an ox or as a bear. It doesn't mean he's an ox, nor does it mean he's a bear. It's a form of speech to represent very succinctly something about his strength. Right? This is what's going on here as well. So this image, what, what he's seeing is something that conveys to him the, the reason why, okay, so if those are indeed thrones, those beings are beyond our human comprehension. Alright? And in, they need to communicate to us something about their essence, and that's what they're doing. And the image is complicated, it's not simple, and it's not easy to visualize. By any stretch of the imagination, it's really hard. And it'll, it'll, it points to the fact that he, Ezekiel is having difficulty describing it, although his writings is one of the most sophisticated of all the Old Testament, because he was a priest and he was very highly educated. And each went straight forward, wherever the spirit would go they went, without turning as they went. In the midst of the living creatures there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches, torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted tenfold like a flash of lightning. So there is a burning coals, which is essentially an altar. Alright? So this is the burning coals at the altar of the Lord. The idea, therefore, is much proceeds, much power proceeds from the altar. We're going to see that again in St. John. Now as I looked, as living creatures, I saw a wheel upon earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and the construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of a chrysolite, and the four had the same likeness, their construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. The four wheels had rims, and they had spokes, and the rims were full of eyes round about. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Um, what are those wheels? Again, very hard to know what they are. But because they are on earth, they're touching earth in their wheels, they present the material effect that angels have on, on the material world. Uh, there is a uh, Catholic understanding that one of the roles of the angels is to make sure that the universe keeps sticking. Alright, so behind the planets and behind the stars and behind the moon and behind all the physical manifestation, there are angels. Now, don't get me wrong and don't simplify the image. Don't think that the earth is turning on the sun because there's an angel running behind the earth and kind of pushing it. Alright, let's not simplify it. The, the, the work of the angels on the material universe does not contradict the laws of physics. The laws of physics. The laws of physics explain to us how things work. They're telling us this is how they're working. They simply can't tell us why. Why is the sun burning in a stable fashion? Well, we don't know. We know it is. But why? We don't know. Why is it that as the sun is decreasing in temperature, the core of the earth is increasing? Well, we don't know. It's, we, we, can, we can see that, but we don't know. You know, in the formation of the stars around the sun, in the formation of the planets around the sun, what happens is you have a dust, a ring of dust, and centrifugal forces start pulling that ring inside, and it basically follows an exponential curve. You know, that physically that's how it happens, right? So you end up with a spiral with different bands, different arms of the spiral, and they are distanced from each other 
by an exponential function. Basically, they double in distance. And if you line up the planets of this solar system, you will see that they follow exactly that same model, except for Earth. It's an anomaly. It doesn't follow the, 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 the curve right. We don't know why, but, it, but that's where it is, right? And so on and so forth. The laws of physics explain to us how things work, but not why. So it is entirely reasonable for us to say that there are angelic beings who are keeping things running the way they're supposed to be running. That's, that doesn't contradict reason. Um, it simply makes this whole universe more appealing to us. So the, the eyes, of course, represent wisdom, the wisdom of the spirit, and also understanding and order. So the reason, the, essentially, the wheels are ordered. They're round, they're circle, and they move according to their nature, and they're full of eyes, which is the presence of the spirit. Therefore, things move through wisdom. Right? That's one of the understanding that you can have about these wheels. Why are they full of eyes? Now, why the wheels within the wheels? Other than complexity, I have no other reason to give you right now. I don't know. If anyone knows or anyone has a better explanation, I'd like to hear it. Over the heads of the living creatures there was li the likeness of a firmament shining like crystal spread out above their heads. And under the firmament there were wings were stretched out straight one, to one toward the other and each creature had two wings covering its body. That firmament of which Ezekiel is speaking will be the sea of crystal of which John will speak. It's the same object but one is seeing it from underneath the other is seeing it from above. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the thunder of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of a host. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the firmament over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the firmament over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. So here we go. This is a throne vision that John is going to have. In appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness, as it were, of a human form, and upward from what had the appearance of his loins I saw, as it were, gleaming bronze, like the appearance of fire enclosed round about, and downward from what had the appearance of his loins I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness round about him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud, the rainbow, right? which is exactly what John is going to see, the rainbow behind the throne, right? Uh, gleaming bronze, our Lord will appear in the book of Revelation and his loins from onward are made of gleaming bronze. Fire is issuing from his eyes. So what he's seeing here is of course an image of, of the divinity. That's what he's seeing and he's seeing the throne of God. Now you can, you can at least sympathize with Ezekiel because how easy is it to describe the throne of God? It's very difficult, right? It's very difficult, but you can see that this image is consistent all across, even into Revelation. The same image appears over and over again. Again, he, he has the typical reaction of someone who's really faced with God. He falls on his face, and he hears a voice. Son of man, stand up upon your feet, and I will speak with you. And when he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. So you see, again, we cannot hear the voice of God if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that acts in us, that makes us, that enables us to hear the voice of God. You need the Spirit in you, the Spirit of God the Father, to hear His voice. And that's what we receive in baptism. That's why baptism is so important for us, is to receive the Spirit of, of God. 
And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The people also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are rebellious house, they will know that there has been a prophet among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit upon scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their, at their looks, for they are rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are rebellious house. So he's essentially commissioning him to be a prophet, and he's saying, go to Jerusalem and go to my people and be afraid of them. Why is he saying that? Because typically, every prophet who went to Jerusalem and prophesied was killed. Okay? It's not a very... Um, how should I say? It's not a promising uh, profession. Alright? So, but you son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and lo, a written scroll was 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 in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning, and woe. Same exact words, same exact scroll that John will be given to eat. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat, and he said to me, Son of man, eat the scroll that I give to you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And St. John says, it was in my mouth as sweet as honey, but, when, but bitter in my stomach. Right. So, did he physically eat a scroll? Well, I cannot tell you that. But basically, he's given to eat the Word of God. Now, that's really interesting because the, the, what, I, what, what I've always found very surprising is that people will accept the idea fairly readily that God will give a man a scroll to eat. But they really have a hard time accepting that God will give himself in the form of bread for us to eat. Which is easier. Have you tried to eat a scroll? Exercise. Go home, take a piece of paper and try to chew on it. And paper that we have today is, is like honey compared to the scroll back then. Alright? Maybe. I mean, that ink may have been poisonous as far as I'm concerned. I don't know. But certainly not a delicacy. Son of man, go get you... Go get you to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not too many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. Ouch. If I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because, of all, because all the house of Israel are of a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face hard against their faces and your forehead hard against their foreheads. Like Adam and harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, not nor be dismayed of their looks, for they are rebellious house. Son of man, all my word that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go get you to the exiles, your people, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or, or refuse to, to hear. So, the Spirit of God lifts him up and he's sent to the exiles of the house of God. And you can see already why the rabbis had a little bit of a problem letting people read this. Okay. I've not counted the number of times rebellious appears there. 
but it should be at least seven. It may be even exactly seven. I don't know. But the, the, the hard part is that if you send him to foreigners, they will listen. The house of Israel, they will not. Ouch. So in chapter 1 and following, what we see is, uh, is um, Ezekiel going to, the, going to the house of Israel and trying to speak to them. So for instance, pardon? Because he is a son of man, right? Absolutely. Yes. But son of man, especially among, um, among, uh, among um, Middle Eastern, is an expression we still use today. Bani Adam. Just mean man. Okay? Bani is Ben, Bani. Ben-E, son of Adam. Bani Adam. So in our language, in Arabic, if we say, we want to speak of a man, we say Bani Adam. That's it. In this specific instance, it doesn't have any deeper meaning than that. Right? But Christ takes on that meaning because when Daniel sees this vision, he says, one like a son of man. And, and as they reflected on that, they understood that the Messiah, the one to whom all power and strength will be given, will be a son of Adam, the son of man. And that now be, was coined to mean the Messiah. So it has a double meaning, right? But in this specific instance, it's just man. Besides, son of man seems a little bit more mysterious than man. Okay, if you recall from the series we had, the question is, how do we know whether the image is, 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 is a, what we call a, um, I forgot the right expression now. Is it, is it the true sense of the word or is it an image? It's still a literal sense. The literal sense pertains to what has happened back then. And then you can take it either um, at face value, the words mean exactly what they mean, or they are representing something else. This is still different from the spiritual sense. right? And in every case, there is no hard and fast rule. You have to exercise judgment. Sometimes you know, because as you said yourself, in the context, God is not sending him on an adventure in the jungle for him to meet a whole bunch of scorpions, right? What he means is that even if I sent you to them and they're trying to kill you using scorpions, and even if you sat on those scorpions, I'll take care of you. So clearly, God doesn't have in mind him sitting on scorpions, but it's an image taken to mean, I'm going to take care of you, right? Just as we would say today, um, you know, you, you, you would use a, a, a metaphor to indicate some reality, right? But you don't necessarily mean its primary sense, as if when you say to somebody, give me a break. Surely you don't mean, give me a break. Now I'm saying that people can accept easier the notion that we're eating a scroll than receiving communion. Meaning that, but let me finish, meaning that even if indeed he ate the scroll, people will have less difficulty with it than receiving communion. I am not necessarily saying that he indeed physically ate the scroll. I'm saying the jury is out. It could be either way. It could be that God indeed handed him a small scroll for him to eat, chew on, literally. Or it could mean that God is doing something to him and it's represented through that imagery of the scroll. 
I'm saying it is possible, but we cannot infer from the text that he indeed did that. He said it was sweet in his it was sweet as honey, but we also know that certain mystical experiences can lead to you feeling certain ways. So it's hard to tell. Okay. Now, he was overwhelmed. He was sent there and got overwhelmed. So he sat there and said nothing for seven days. I'm hoping by now you're starting to realize that notions of, you know, visions and, and supernatural manifestation are not easy things to deal with. They're anything but easy. They're really tough on us. Okay? And at the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you watchmen for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, he will, basically, he will die, and you will be responsible. If you say it, and then he does whatever, I'm not going to hold you accountable for it. That was he's telling him. Essentially, he's saying, you will speak what I tell you. And I'm going to hold you accountable to that. I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And then he says, if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, okay, it's the same thing. So that's essentially your job is to let them know. And then if you let them know that whatever they do, you're not going to be held responsible. But if you don't, you're going to be held responsible. And that's what a bishop is. A bishop is a shepherd of souls. And a bishop is held responsible for what happens to these souls if the bishop did not communicate to them the truth. But if the bishop communicates to them to the truth and they do whatever they, they want to do, he's not held responsible. You understand? And the priest likewise. And anyone who wants to teach in the name of the church is held by the same, by the same rule. That is why anyone who wants to teach scripture and who deviates from the teaching of the church knowingly will have much to answer for. Because he's in a position of a teacher. And so he went to the plain and again he has a vision. It's the same glory vision that he has seen before. The spirit entered into me and he said, go shut yourself within your house. And you, son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cleave to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be dumb and unable to reprove them for their rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He that will hear, let him hear, and he that will refuse to hear, let him refuse for their rebellious house. So, God doesn't always speak to us through words. He will use signs. And in Ezekiel, this happens over and over again. He's telling him, I'm gonna, you're going to go to your house, you're going to sit down, and you're going to be tied down. Now again, did those robes appear from nowhere and tie him down? It was a bunch of angels that did the job? Or some guy showed up and tied him down? We don't know. All we know is that he's going to be tied down. And he's going to be dumb, unable to speak. Unable to speak until God opens his mouth. You remember another guy to whom that happened? Pardon? Yes. The father of John the Baptist, right? He was also a priest. A Levite. Just as Ezekiel is. And the same thing happened to him. Yeah, so, chapter 4, first sign. He tells him, basically, to make a, make, essentially make a mini-city and lay siege around it. Remember, he can't speak right now. So, the people, imagine, oh, he's the prophet. Right. 
Prophet can't speak. Aha, that's funny. Right? And then you see him coming out, and he's just taking a bunch of breaks, and he's building a little city. What's he doing? I don't know. Oh, look, look, it's a little... Oh, that's really cute. Oh, he's put a siege around it. Huh. And now he's destroying it. <laughs> he's a prophet. Right. You, you understand? God is giving them signs, and the signs look to them as though they are completely ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. Right? Why? Because they, the signs are not coming the way they were expecting signs to come. They should come with power and strength and might and... Right? No. A simple sign by a guy who's dumb. Because they have eyes they can't see. They cannot perceive what's going on. And so this is what God does. Then... Not only does he have to do that, but then God tells him, verse 4, Lie upon your left side, and I will lay the punishment of the house of Israel upon you for the number of the days that you lie upon it. You shall bear their punishment, for I assign to you a number of days. 390 days. Huh. There's another, uh, the, the, the Septuagint, I think, this is a Masoretic text, it says 390. Anybody has 190 in your, in your translation? Not 390. 190? Okay. Some translation will render 190. It's basically the number of years since the exile of the house of Israel. That's how long he has to lie on his left side. And then when he's done with that, you're going to lie on your right side for 40 days. And this is for the house of Judah. So what does lying on one side mean? It means you can't move, right? You're stuck. You're incapable of moving yourself. So that's for all to see that it is the work of God that He made that happen to both Israel and Judah. Then, and you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and you shall prophesy against the city and behold I will put cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. Beautiful. Beautiful job. And then he says, take wheat, barley, beans, and lentils, millet and spelt, and put them into a single vessel. Now why is that important? Because according to the law of Deuteronomy, you are not allowed to plant these grains in the same field, let alone eating them together. You understand? You're not allowed to plant those grains in the same field, let alone eating them together. But God is allowing an exception so that he gives a sign of the famine that will hit Jerusalem. He's telling them, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to have to violate my law because you're going to be so hungry. And so, verse um, 13, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations, whither I will drive them. And then, and I said... Our Lord God, behold, I have never defied myself from my youth up to now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beast. Nor has foul flesh come into my mouth. Then he said to me, see, I will let you have... Um, oh yeah, right, I forgot. He has to cook those things on, uh, on human dung. You know, dung is a fuel. It burns. And he has to cook them on human dung. Which is an absolute... Um, violation of the law of Moses so, so Ezekiel is arguing with God and God says fine I'll allow you to cook them on cow's dung great 
Alright, then again we follow chapter 5, another sign, take, take a sword, shave your head with it, which is another sign of uh, disgrace. You're not, you're not supposed to shave your head, only slaves have head shaven. Use it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard, then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city. When the days of the siege are completed and a third part you shall take and strike with a sword round about the city, and the third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will un unsheath the sword after them. So imagine this guy who's dumb, can't speak to you, can't talk, who's laid a siege against that city. He lay on one side with ropes and on the other, and he's eating that food you're not supposed to eat, burning it on top of cow's dung. Then he gets up, takes a sword, shaves his head, shaves his beard, takes a balance, puts them in three parts, puts one, one third of this on a little city, city that he has and burns them, takes the other part and kind of cuts them with a sword. You ever try to do that? And then takes the rest of it and disperses it to the wind. Right? What do you think of a guy like this? Yes. Yes, it's not a sin though. Remember, God, what is a sin? It's doing, doing something which is not according to God's will. If God is commanding him to do something, obviously it is not a sin. It is a violation, but God did not. God did not. It's a violation of the Mosaic law, but it's not a sin. Because the Mosaic law was only temporary. Right? And it did not save. But what, he's trying, what God is trying to do is to let them know what is coming. He's basically saying, when you're going to be in a nation scattered in exiles, you're going to eat the food, which is not going to be according to, to the law of Moses. Then, um, and of these again you shall come, alright, so, thus says the Lord God, this is verse 5, this is Jerusalem, I have set her in the center of the nations, which countries run about, and she has wickedly rebelled against my ordinances more than she, the nations, more than the nations, she rebelled more than the nations, that's what's really hard, right? Therefore says the Lord, Behold, I, even I, am against you. Notice the repetition of I. In the original, there's no I, even I. There's I, I. Right? And the first I is really a divine. Yahweh. And then the second I is his action. So when, when we see this I, even I, the rabbis commented on it, even though they didn't know what to do really with it. The fathers of the church picked it up. And I will execute judgments in the midst of you, in the sight of the nations, and because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in the midst of you, and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds. Wherefore, as I live, again, that's a covenantal oath. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defied my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will cut you down. My eyes will not spare and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in the midst of you. A third part shall fall by the sword round about you. A third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheath un un the, the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend, spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Uh, I will make you a desolation, an object of reproach among the nations round about you, and in the sight of all that pass by. Hard language, very, very hard, very strong language. The important thing for us is that, number one, this is a similar language we're going to find in the book of Revelation. And number two, the same principle applies yet today. 
And in fact, it applies more so to us than it applied to them. Because back then they did not have, they did not have the graces of the, of the new, new covenant. They did not have baptism. They did not have confession. They did not have communion. They did not have sanctifying grace in their marriages. They had none of that. And God were ask, asked them to be faithful to the covenant. We have all these things and he's asking us to be faithful to the covenant. And as with everything else, Catholics in their majority have rebelled against the Lord. Alright? So when you read the book of Ezekiel, you can take that and apply these words to us today. Okay? And you need to use wisdom to look for how God is speaking to us in our own world. And you look at the events that are surrounding us, good or bad, as signs and as symbols of God speaking to us about His plan for us. In chapter 6, we have again another prophecy about the altars becoming desolate and the incense altar being broken and I will cast down your idols. It is again the same language is coming through. It continues all the way. In chapter 7, uh, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. You see, that's why I prefer this particular translation because it is very, very specific. It is the land, not the four corners of the earth. It's the land. And I think a proper translation for the book of Revelation should follow the same principle. Because whenever in the book of Revelation we see the word earth, we lose the meaning. But if you were to substitute land to earth and keep it focused on the promised land, the book of Revelation suddenly becomes much more meaningful, just as it is here. Notice God is not at this point interested in the earth. He's interested in the land. Which land? The promised land. Alright? It's interesting that there is this principle, then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am... How do we... How, how could we know that it is the Lord when He is basically coming down with, you know, destruction, mayhem, and, and you know, no pity, and fury, and vengeance? How would we know that He's the Lord? Um, you see, it's, it's this principle that says that oftentimes what prevents us from knowing the Lord is our pride. And pride can become as hard as flint. So when our heart hardens, and pride has taken hold, it deforms reality. It deforms reality. So when you're speaking to someone who, let's say, believes in a principle that is against the teaching of the church. Okay? You know, let's take my favorite, contraception. Most people will be shocked today to, when they hear me say contraception is actually mortal sin. They may be even shocked that there is such thing as a mortal sin to begin with. And they may be shocked that contraception is one of them. And why, why is that? Because as you practice certain vice, the vice becomes truth for you. Conscience becomes deformed, warped. And you sincerely believe that this is truth. And when this happens, truth becomes lie. So when you hear people say, well, I'm supposed to do according to the dictate of my conscience, the proper answer is, Yes, provided that your conscience is formed according to the truth. But if your conscience is formed according to the lie, you should not be following the dictator of your conscience because it's basically taking you down the wrong path. That's why the formation of the conscience according to the teachings of the church is of primary importance. 
Otherwise, you have a conscience that is deformed. Hence, don't be surprised if, some, if someone is holding to a point such as where a woman is allowed to have abortion. And you know, how could they think this way? Well, that's why they can think this way. Because conscience has been completely deformed. And hopefully this will help you in your dealing with them not to be shocked or upset or ascribe to them really evil intent. Very few people have really evil intent. Very, very few. Now, take that notion that very few people have evil intent and marry it with the fact that a lot of people end up in hell. And try to understand that. You don't have to have evil intent to end up in hell. You understand? It's not the lack of an evil intent that will get us in hell. St. Paul is very clear. It is the neglect, even if we neglect that which we have been given, that is enough to get us in hell. Very good point. Thank you for bringing me back to... Yes, yes. My point is that when it's so deformed, the only way, the only way out is to somehow illuminate the conscience about itself. So the conscious has to see itself as an object and see that it is deformed. You know how hard this is? Sort of like the brain thinking that it's thinking as it's thinking. If you can follow me. The brain thinking that it's thinking as it's thinking, I'm thinking. All right? It's very hard. It's very hard to observe something that you're doing. It's very hard to observe that you're running as you're running. It's very hard to observe that you're doing something as you're doing it, but particularly hard when it's intellectual. Very hard to observe yourself thinking as you're thinking. Right? It's very hard. So in moral matters, it's very hard for the conscience to observe itself, to see itself, to see itself either in the truth or under the lie. That's why St. Augustine always prays, let me know myself that I may know thee. That's what he means. So, when God then takes those material realities that the conscience has pinned its hope on and break them down, all of them, and take them away, strip the conscience from them, the conscience now is forced to at least admit one thing. My plan isn't working. I failed. Because that is plain for the eyes to see. And then, once this happens, out of sheer necessity, notice, out of sheer egotistic necessity, not out of love of God. In other words, the prodigal son, prodigal son, when he came back to himself, remember, why did he come back to himself? He's hungry. That's what happened. His conscience was so warped that he accepted, even though he was of the house of God, to go and work in the field serving the pigs, which are unclean animals, and he wished to eat the food they were eating, which was obviously unclean, but nobody would give it to him. That's the only reason he would need it. He was afraid that he'd be beaten and because they would consider that he he'd stole the food away. That's the only reason. So what happened to him? He came back to himself. What did he say? Something very pragmatic. He didn't say, oh, I, what a terrible kid I am. I really broke my father's heart. He didn't say any of this. He said, this is really stupid. Wait a minute. My, my, 
the servants in my father's house are better treated than this. So, okay, I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, what I'm going to say to him, something that pleases his ear. Doesn't mean he's particularly sincere about it at this point. He's hungry. So he'll say whatever. I've sinned against you and against heavens. Don't treat me as a son, just treat me as a servant. Give me something to eat and I'll be happy. That's it. That's the extent of his love for his father. Don't romanticize the story. He's not the hero coming back. Far from it. The story is not about the son or the other son. The story is about the father. He's the hero. Not the sons. Okay? So, when God does that, at the very least, we recognize that's not going to work. I need something else. And then I'm ready to take anything because I'm desperate. Because only desperation will force me out of a warped conscience. Only desperation will force me out of a warped Only the fact that if I don't do this, I'm going to die. That's it. That's why they'll know. Notice, when this happens, I took away the stuff that they were so attached to. They are now in dire straits. And then now, they can turn around and call upon me. It's really an act of mercy on God's part because He's trying to spare them from what? Hell. Damnation. That's why those folks who say that AIDS is a wrath of God are, as far as I'm concerned, mistaken. I think AIDS is a great act of mercy on God's part. I don't want to romanticize it or make it... And again, we have to be very real. This is, it's awful. I won't wish it on anybody. I'm my worst enemy. It's an awful disease. But it strips you away from those things that warp your conscience and give you at least a moment of grace where you can recognize God and be reconciled with Him and attain unto salvation. And 200 billion years later, you don't even remember anything about that. Okay? You need to always keep those texts, as even though they're very hard and harsh, in perspective of eternity. In the perspective of eternity. Otherwise, they make no sense. Or they make a lot less sense, let's say. Okay. Again, verse 5, disaster after disaster. The same language continues, continues throughout. Um, verse 14 they have blown the trumpet and made already but none goes to battle for my wrath is upon all their multitude the sword is without is without pestilence and famine are within he that is in the field dies by the sword and him that is in the city famine and pestilence devour those are almost word for word uh, the woes that we find in Deuteronomy and Leviticus word for word sword, pestilence and famine the only thing that's missing are earthquakes right so, chapter 8, six years, sixth month, and fifth day, I set my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me. The hand of the Lord fell there upon me. Then I beheld, and lo, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be in his loins, is, uh, it was fire, and above his loins, it was like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming bronze. He put forth the form of a hand, and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in vision of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gate where the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes the, to jealousy. What is he talking about? He's in Shebar, among the exiles. On that day, essentially an angel or a theophany, we don't know, it's not clear, appears to him and picks him up and takes him. Now, again, did he physically go there? Did he go there in a vision? 
your bed is his mind. We don't know. But be it as it may, he takes him to Jerusalem and to the gate that faces to the north. And there, there is the image of the jealousy that provokes jealousy. What is he talking about? The image of the jealousy is that of a foreign god. In the temple, there is an image of a foreign god that provokes the jealousy of God. That's what he's talking about. Alright? Because of their alliances with Egypt, they started to bring up some of the gods of Egypt into the temple. And profane the temple. Okay? And that's what we tend to do today when we ally ourselves too closely with the world. Suddenly, you have worldly elements entering the church. Okay? And then he said, And behold, the glory of, the, of God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now in the direction of the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here? to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will still see greater abominations. So the first thing is this statue of this um, pagan god in the middle of the, by the northern gate. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, we don't know which court, but I was supposed to the court of the priests. There's the court of the priests, the court of men, the court of women, and the court of the Gentile. He says the court. Which court? Uh, I can't tell. Um, Behold, when I looked, there was a, a, a hole in the wall. Then said he to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. And when I dug in the wall, lo, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there portrayed upon the wall round about were all kinds of creeping things and lawful beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Seventy, presumably the Sanhedrin, the elders of the temple, under the temple they had dug a secret room on which they placed gods, presumably Egyptian gods, and they were worshipping them. See, what provokes the wrath of God? Not the conduct of the nations. Not the immoralities that the nations commit. Not what happens outside. That is to be expected. Since the fall, the... The nature of man is disordered. So it is to be expected that the world will be worldly. That does not provoke God's wrath. What provokes God's wrath is when His people behave in a worldly way. That is the breaking of the covenant. That provokes His wrath. That is why I repeat to you, the source of power is the Mass. The liturgy is the summit and the source of the life of the church, and I would add, of the world. Everything flows from the liturgy. And that's why where the center of the battle is right here, if you and your parishes start to focus on creating groups of prayer with the sole intent to make sure that there, are, there will not be one single... Um, one single... Um, unworthy reception of the Eucharist, you will change your parish. If you were not to focus on, oh, the priest is doing this, and the priest is doing that, and how could you do that? That's not going to get you anywhere. That's going to get you anywhere and no one else. Anywhere. But if you were to find mind, like-minded folks who are willing to offer sacrifice and fasting, you see, it's personal stuff now. 
Because I can sit here and complain about the priest and it costs me nothing. My belly is full and I'm feeling cool and obviously my needs are satisfied so I can complain about the priest. Right? If I'm hungry and I'm desperate for food, I'm not complaining about the priest. And if I can fast, if I can offer sacrifice, if I can pray the rosary, if I can do something as a group before the Blessed Sacrament and pray that there will be not one unworthy reception of the Eucharist in my parish, not in the world, not in the Vatican, not in all of America, not, no, no, just where I am right now, here, today. And I'm not going to worry about anything else. Just that. You will see wonders in your parish. Things will start to transform and you won't know exactly why. But things will change. Because a group of people has decided that God is really important for them. They do not want Him to suffer being in one soul who is not in a state of grace. That's why. They're doing it because they love Jesus so much, they do not want Him to suffer being in a soul who is not in a state of grace. That's why they're doing it. And if they did that, and persevered, and be patient, they will transform their parish. That's why our parishes are in such dire straits because we Catholics have left the language of God. We don't understand how to talk to Him. We think it takes uh, reforms and changes and waiting for the Vatican to act as our Savior and then do some edicts and then some, something, somehow by miracle everybody's going to follow them just because the Pope said it. No, it's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So then, essentially this whole passage here in this... Um, in this text is about the, the abominations that are committing and those abominations are, um, are all liturgically based. They're all around the liturgy, around their behavior in the temple. Notice, it's mainly that. It's the way they behave towards God that is causing Him to be so wrathful. But naturally, also, the fact they're not feeding the poor, they're not taking care of the hungry, they're not doing the acts of mercy is adding to God's wrath. And it is His people and He's about to be chastisement. So what we're going to do in two weeks when we come back is look at some of the prophecies that we're going to really focus... We're going to look at some of the prophecies spoken against, against other countries, especially Tyre. It's really interesting. Prophecy against Tyre. And then we're going to focus on those elements that are going to really pertain directly to the book of Revelation. And the week after, we'll look at the vision of the temple and the beautiful image of the river coming, flowing through and, and feeding the world. That's why we say it's Mass that feeds the world. It's the Church that feeds the world. Because of that image of the river flowing from the new Eden, the new paradise, which is the altar of the Lord, through us to the world. One last thing, remember that uh, next Friday, Holy, Friday of Holy Week, is the day where the Novena of the Chapter of Divine Mercy starts and it culminates on the Sunday following Easter called the Sunday of Mercy. And on that Sunday, uh, we have, it is a Sunday of um, um, plenary indulgence. And that means that if you go to confession, plus or minus seven days, with perfect contrition, and then you say prayer to the Pope, you say the rosary, and I think another prayer, you can have full remission of all the punishment due to sin. 
not only are your sins forgiven, but all the punishments associated with your sins are also taken away. So please uh, start that novena on the Friday of Holy Week, and may God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.